there is a verse of scripture that I've seen hanging on the walls of nursing homes. I've seen this verse of scripture posted outside of church buildings. And it's the words of Jesus from John 10.10, which simply says this, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Great verse, inspiring verse, gives hope. But every time I see it, the way I see it is like this, dot, 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 I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Now, many of you know that usually they put dots there in different places because that might really not apply or help us understand the rest of the scripture. So they put dot, dot, dot and go on with the scripture. However, when you look at Jesus' words in John 10, 10, I think you'll find that those three dots mean a whole lot. Because just before Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, he said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Now I can see why you want to leave that out, right? Not something you want to see on hanging on great-grandma's wall. Not something you want to see as you walk into a church building, right? Oh, man, that makes me feel good about being here. But it is so essential because the verse isn't complete without it. It would be like having a job description that says you can work 80 hours a week tasting all kinds of different dog food, and you'll make $100,000 a year. But the advertisement for that job simply says taste tester, $100,000 a year. You kind of need to know what the job is. The good news is Jesus comes that we may have life and have it abundantly. But the reality, every single one of us is being opposed in this life by Satan. C.S. Lewis writes this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And hail the, so hail the materialist or the magician with the same delight. Now I want to be careful as we go into this this morning that we don't give Satan too much attention because there's danger in throwing the spotlight on him because evil can have an unhealthy attraction at times. And Satan would love nothing more than you and I to leave this building today thinking more highly of him than what he deserves. So why is this necessary? Why come and why talk about Satan? Wouldn't our time be better spent talking about family issues or person, personality issues or relationships? Well, George Barnes says this, that while almost every American believes in the existence of God, 60% of Americans would say that Satan is not a real being, that he's just a symbol for evil. He's kind of like a logo for sin, right? Kind of like a cartoon figure that we just think about in our dreams. 
And he would prefer it that way for us just to think of him as a cartoon figure and a symbol for sin. But he puts out temptation traps around us to pull us in with his schemes. I want to start off with a couple of words that we need to define that are important we have an understanding as we go through the next four weeks. Word number one is sin. Sin. You may not think it's necessary to define sin. I don't think we talk about it enough today in today's world. I don't think we acknowledge what it is enough. The Oxford Junior Dictionary recently took the word sin out of their dictionary. The reason they gave for taking it out, they said the word has fallen, and I quote, the word has fallen into disuse and is no longer recognized by the younger generation. They explained there are other synonyms that you can put in place of the word sin that mean the same thing. Words like indiscretion, indiscretion, lapse of judgment, accident, mistake. All those words really aren't the same as the word sin. The Bible doesn't say you and I are mistakers. You and I are full of accidents. No, the Bible says that you and I are what? Sinners. 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 The Bible describes sin as a transgression against God, where we do something that he said not to do, or we don't do something he said to do. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. Romans chapter 3 describes it as a missing of the mark. It says all of sin, all of us have missed the mark. Jeff Hugis is a sinner. There's no perfection here. No perfection. Joe is a sinner. Lloyd is a sinner. And I think it's important for us to understand that because we not only can accept that we are not perfect, but neither are those people around us. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a sinner. Go ahead. Some of you enjoyed that too much. (laughs) But it's the truth. We all are. And so in a little while here, after I get to the end of the message, we're going to take part in communion as we do every single week. In that moment, we're going to recognize what Jesus has done for us on the cross, what we could never do for ourselves. That it's by his grace that we are saved. The Bible says the wages of sin are death. And the only way for those wages to be sin to be paid for was by the shedding of blood on a cross. For your forgiveness and for my forgiveness. So the word sin is important. Second word as we jump into this series is the word temptation. You're like, oh wait, we just talked about that. No, We talked about sin. Sin and temptation are two different things, not the same word. Temptation is defined as a strong urge or desire to have or do something, especially something that is bad, wrong, or unwise. It's really important to understand sin and temptation are not the same. Jesus in Matthew 4 was tempted, yet Jesus was sinless. 
Hebrews says he was tempted in every way, just as you and I are, yet Jesus was without what? Sin. So temptation and sin are different words. If you have your Bible or you have your Bible app, turn to the book of Job and also be on the screen as we go through some of this. But we're going to look at Job. And often when you look at the book of Job, you talk about suffering. And it's no coincidence then in Job 1 and 2, it talks more about Satan than any other passage in all of the Bible. In Job chapter 1, we find out that Job's living a pretty good life, loving life, honoring God, trying to love the Lord with everything he had. Job 1, 2 describes him. It says, Job had seven sons, three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and over 500 donkey, and a large number of servants. He had it going pretty good. But I want you to see temptation number one, the trap that is set up. Satan intends to distract me, distract you with, with what is momentary, momentary. If they had television back then, there would have been a show basically entitled The Fabulous Life of Job, all right, because he had it well. Does that bother Satan when we prosper, experience wealth? Well, Satan really doesn't care much about us being financially prosperous, living a carefree lifestyle. I think most of the time he's fine with that. But don't let that sell us short on the fact that Satan, one of his greatest weapons is our joy, our prosperity, because he can turn that around. Satan's intention is to direct us towards that because that's momentary. And if I'm caught in, up in what is temporary, then I'll have no time for the eternal. Let me say that again. If I'm caught up in with what is temporary, then I'll have no time for the eternal, the things that really matter for God. Satan's intention is to turn our focus towards the urgent, what is temporary, what is trivial, because if he can distract us, then he's got us. If you're sitting here this morning and your mind is anywhere but on what God's word is saying, he's got you. Is that how simple it is? Now, why did that lady wear that red shirt? He's got you. If he can distract us with the temporary, then we won't dwell on what's eternal and how God wants to speak to us. So he distracts us. Bible says in the word of God says, the word of God's being choked out by the pleasures of this world. So reading an article, World Magazine, he explained that the Chinese church, the Chinese church is very, very persecuted. And when they pray, pray for the Christian church in America, you know what they pray for for us? They pray that we would be persecuted. They pray that we would be persecuted. Why is that? Well, because they understand that deadly distractions can, in persecution can make you focus on God more. And they pray for us to focus on God more. Philip Yancey points this out in his book, Hunger for God. Listen to what he writes. 
The greatest enemy of a hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet table of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, his most deadly weapons are not the poison of evil, but the simple pleasures of earth. They are your basic meat and potatoes, coffee and gardening, reading and decorating, traveling, investing, TV watching, internet surfing, shopping, exercising, and collecting. All these things can be deadly weapons in the hands of Satan if, if they take our focus and time away from serving and worshiping him. Think about all the things in our life that are trivial that we spend time doing that takes us away from focusing on the eternal and worshiping God. You see, Satan does doesn't have to convince you that there is no God or there is no heaven or there is no hell if he can convince you there is no hurry. He doesn't have to convince you there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no hell. If he can convince you there's no hurry. He knows distractions can lead to our ultimate destruction. Well, Job Job had worldly wealth, success. He was different, though. It never affected him. He feared God. He was blameless. He was pure. But then in verse 8, most of you know the story. A conversation takes place between God and Satan, and it takes place in the heavenly realms. And here's how it goes, beginning in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no man on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you put a hedge of protection, hedge around him in his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Second temptation trap here we want to look at is Satan intends to destroy me, destroy you with suffering. Suffering. Next few chapters of Job, we see ways that Satan intends to destroy us by how he tried to destroy Job. If he can't distract me, he's going to try to destroy me with suffering, with pain. One way he does that, believe it or not, is through nature. Satan kills Job's children, but look how he does it. Verse 19, chapter 1. Suddenly, a mighty wind swept through the desert and struck the four corners of the house and it collapsed on them. A messenger told Job, they're all dead. Your family's dead. 
Satan seems to have the power over nature. Shouldn't surprise us. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. I want to be careful, though, because as you talk about this and you talk about Satan's control of nature, you got to be careful because we'll soon think Satan's behind every disaster. Um, if you sneeze, oh, Satan made you sneeze. And that's not necessarily the truth. In fact, Job, he didn't have all the answers, but he had a lot of questions. And God simply said, Job, those really aren't for you to ask right now. But Job was faithful. Job was sincere, and he was ultimately rewarded by God. Another tool Satan uses, physical disease and sickness. Job 2.7 says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he went then and asked permission if he could harm Job personally. He came back, and God grants him that. Satan afflicted Job with painful sores, from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job would take a piece of pottery and scrape himself and scrape his skin, and he sat amongst the ashes. And it begins to wear Job down, but it destroys his wife, who's watching it all happen. And his wife says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Maybe Satan hasn't attacked you through physical illness and suffering, but maybe he's attacked someone that you love. And your response, because you can't take their place, is because become bitter and angry. And if you're not careful, Satan can turn that bitterness and that anger and that suffering against God. Before we go on with a, a couple more of these, I think we had to push the pause button and remind ourselves that Satan is not as powerful as God. Remember who God is. God is omnipotent, right? Which means God is what? All powerful, all powerful. Satan's powers are limited when it comes to God. They're not even in the same category. It'd be like taking the Ohio State football team and putting them on the field with our local junior high football team. It wouldn't even be close. They're not even in the same category. And in the book of Job, there's one more thing Satan uses here, and that's wicked people, wicked people. Job 1.17, a messenger comes to Job and says, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off and they put your servants to the sword. Wicked, wicked people. There's a story in the book of 2 Kings where King Aram, an enemy of Israel, comes and gathers his troop, troops and a great army. They send the great army to kill one person, God's servant, Elisha. And in the story, we find Elisha and Elisha's servants surrounded by all these enemy troops. And Elisha's servant becomes nervous and scared. It says, alas, master, what shall we do? What are we going to do? And here's what Elisha says. Don't be afraid. 
those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And their servant says, you know, with us? <laughs> as far as I can see, it's me and you. It's me and you. And then Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. The servant opens his eyes and he sees the hills are filled with chariots and horses of fire. I don't know about you, but as I sit and I watch over the past three or four days, everything that's happening in Ukraine, I pray God open their eyes. Let them see chariots of fire that are from you. Let them see your presence. In a few weeks, we're going to talk more about the way out of this, the way to escape these temptation traps. But I want to give you just a little glimpse of how the Ukrainians are escaping. The wicked, wicked, wicked leader that is against them. Watch this. If there was ever was a time where we could see Satan in action, it's now. It's now. And yet for them to go underground and sing and pray, they know where the answer is. And so this morning, I thought it would be unfit for us to gather together and not pray for them. Forget about us for a while. That God would give them strength. That as they're underground and they're praying, they could open their eyes and see the mighty, mighty power of God amongst them and pray for their safety. And so I'm going to ask if you bow your heads and let's just pray silently for a moment and then I'll, I'll pray for them as well. God, there are so many things about this world that we just don't understand. God, one of the biggest ones is suffering. Suffering of people. But God, we realize that Satan can move and Satan can direct and Satan can take over people's hearts and uh, make them do evil, evil, evil things. But God, we also realize that you are the one that's all-powerful. You are the one, God, that can change it all.
And so this morning, God, we call on your power. We call on your presence, God, to be amongst the people of Ukraine and also, God, the people of Russia who are just pulled into this. God, we pray for their safety. We pray, God, that in this suffering, whether they're underground or above ground, that it would cause them to open their eyes and see you. See you. For God, you're the only one, only one who can provide a way of escape through all of this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One more. Satan wants to discourage me and discourage you with accusations. If he can't distract me with what's temporary or destroy me with suffering in this world, then he can discourage me with accusations. Of the 40-some names in Scripture that he's given, he's called an accuser, an accuser. And he insists on accusing you and I with no basis. Anybody ever been accused and there was no basis for it? Still hurts, right? Still takes a toll on you. The Bible says that Satan stands before God and accuses you, accuses you, accuses us, accuses us, just as Job's wife and his friends did. They say, hey, God's just trying to even the score with you. Why don't you just curse God and die? And just though as we have an accuser, the Bible also says we have an advocate. Satan will try to accuse you. He'll say, God's not listening to your prayers, not after what you've done. Met with a guy a few days ago, a couple days ago. He talked about things that he's done in his life. And and, uh, he looked at me and said, you know, Jeff, I, I really wonder if God even hears me because of what I've done. That's Satan, the accuser. Because no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you are, with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have an advocate that speaks on your behalf. He delights in you. Satan intends to distract me with what's temporary. Jesus intends to focus me on, on, focus me on what's eternal. Satan intends to destroy me with suffering. Jesus intends to strengthen me with suffering. Satan intends to discourage me with accusations. Jesus intends to encourage me with grace and truth. You see the difference? In the book of Revelation, besides the battle of Armageddon, there's a battle in Revelation 12. And in this battle, there are two words in it. It says, God bleeds. God bleeds. The only way for the lamb to defeat the dragon was right there. Right there. And when Jesus died on the cross and when Jesus conquered the grave, then that means you and I have incredible, incredible 
news. That means the one who is in me is greater than he that's in the world. No matter how strong Satan can get, no matter what he tries to throw here, it just doesn't matter. Because the one that is in my heart, being Jesus Christ, is greater than he that's in the world. And no matter what he tries, it just doesn't matter. He doesn't measure up. And each Sunday, we remember that sacrifice and remember what he's done for us and remember who he is by taking a cup of juice and a piece of bread, symbolic of Jesus' blood that was shed for us and his body that was sacrificed for us. And as we take this this morning, I want you to remember Greater is he who is in you than he that's in the world. Greater is he that is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Father, we thank you so much for your promises. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you, God, for your power. And God, I pray that all of us as believers would continue continue to feed on the power of your spirit inside of us. Realizing, God, that no matter what Satan does, no matter how he tries to accuse us, no matter what traps he puts out there for us to fall in, God, you are greater. You are greater. And God, we remember your greatness. We remember your sacrifice and what makes us great. Because of your sacrifice and your victory over death as we take these emblems just now. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I pray that you would continue to reinforce us to acknowledge your presence in our life and your presence in this world. No matter the suffering that we may see or we may face, no matter the wicked people that may come our way or we see in the world, God, no matter how Satan tries to distract us with the temporary things of this world, may we focus on you. Instead of those things causing us to be distracted as Satan would like, God, allow those type of things to draw us closer and closer to you and to focus on things that are eternal eternal 
and things that matter for eternity. Speak to us, God, in this world. Give us your power and allow us always to acknowledge greater are you that is inside of us than he that is in the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said,